um, from the beginning. As God unveils this story using these themes, and he continues to use these themes, and these themes show up as God is showing his plan of redemption of his people. Uh, We began our series in the garden with the tree of life, God placing Adam and Eve in this beautiful garden to walk with God, God dwelling with man as heaven and earth meet in what we would call the Garden of Eden. God commands man to eat, eat of every tree in the garden, take what God has provided. God tells man not to eat of the tree of knowledge and good and evil and they will die. And we know what happens in the story. They take and eat of this tree that they think is good to the eye, to taste, and will make them wise, and they go their own way, not trusting God's provision. And we see all that happens as a result of that pain and suffering and death, and now man is not able to partake and eat of the tree of life and live forever. And so the whole rest of the book is unfolding before us. How can man return to the tree of life? How can he reflect the image of God now that he has sinned? How will he deal with the curse of death? And last week we saw the trees sprinkled throughout the scriptures, Noah making the ark of gopher wood and resting on a mountaintop after the flood and building an altar made of this wood unto the Lord. Abraham doing the same thing as he goes to the land in which God has promised him and he builds an altar unto the Lord, an offering to the Lord. He places, and then he, later on he will place his son Isaac, a tree upon Isaac, in which he goes up to sacrifice his one and only son on Mount Moriah in which God provides a substitute. Last week we saw the character of Moses who like Noah is saved by an ark, this time made of reeds as a baby. Like Abraham, God calls to him, yet this time it is a tree on fire, a bush burning on top of Mount Sinai, again on another high place. This God is now making his presence dwell among men. After this, God will deliver his people from Egypt. God will meet his people on this very mountain, Mount Sinai, as he met with Moses. And they will build this tabernacle in which God's presence will go with his people. The tabernacle or the temple symbolizing this garden-like Eden in which God's presence dwells with man, but there's a problem. Man cannot enter into the Holy of Holies, cannot enter the place where God dwells, just like he cannot enter to where the tree of life is. God's presence would kill any unclean thing, and so we have this huge curtain. This high priest could only enter once a year for the specific purposes of atonement for God's people and their sins. Remember, Moses would enter in to God's presence. His face would transform. It would glow as the presence of God would transform him to reflect this great God. 
But as we see this, God's people continue to go their own way. They continue to, for say, eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They continue to, to dabble in their idolatry and break the covenant that they have with the Lord. Moses even fails. He's not allowed to enter into the promised land, yet God shows his steadfast love for his people, continuing to send people of faith who will rise up, rescue God's people from their judgment, resulting from their wickedness. Then we get to the kings and ultimately King David, the king who will take the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem means there will be peace. A city on a high place, on Mount Zion, or Zion, if, if you will. Zion is the Hebrew, but Zion. Zechariah 8.3 says this about Zion or Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts. Remember when the mountain of Sinai was called the mountain of the Lord? Now what is the mountain of the Lord? Jerusalem, the holy mountain. Again, tracing this theme of tree of life, signifying the presence of God, partaking of his divine life with humanity. David, the king, now brings this Ark of the Covenant up to the top of Mount Zion, which was formerly Mount Moriah, to the place where God will dwell among his people in Jerusalem, the Temple Mount. This is why Jerusalem is so important, why Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. It's like the garden, God dwelling with his people in the land that he has promised them. Second Samuel 6:18 tells us even more about this. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. This is after the Ark of the Covenant is returned to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both man and woman, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. And all the people departed, each to his house. So God is providing enough food, just like he did in the garden. All of the trees are God's provision to eat and take of. The picture here is referring us back into the garden. Solomon would eventually build this temple, and he would bring a time of peace unprecedented in Israel's day. First Kings 4, 24. For he had dominion over the region west of the Euphrates to Tipsa to Gaza over all the kings west of the Euphrates. And he had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree. All the days of Solomon. Again, God's presence on a high place, peace, God's provision. Each man has his own vine, his own fig tree. Yet Solomon, like those who were before him, would not remain faithful to the Lord. Israel would fall back into their idolatry. 
going their own way instead of trusting God's way. Isaiah would be this prophet, and if you read the book of Isaiah, he is contrasting Jerusalem with the Garden of Eden. If you read through the book, that is what he is doing, and he's showing that Jerusalem is now a false Eden. Idolatry reigns in Jerusalem. It is no longer the Eden, the dwelling place of God. These false trees of life and these idols are now in these high places, substituting the creation for the creator, and Jerusalem will now be destroyed by Babylon. And Isaiah is prophesying all this, but during Isaiah's prophecy, he would bring hope. Praise the Lord. We have hope. Amen. Come with me. Praise the Lord, we have hope. Because Isaiah would prophesy, and we read it this morning about Isaiah 53, the one who would come in our place, he would take our iniquities upon himself and bring us peace. And Isaiah even talks about this in Isaiah 53. And you know what the next thing he talks about? He talks about the new Jerusalem, which we're going to talk about next week. You don't want to miss that. The new Jerusalem, the new Eden, God is making all things new. Amen? So after this, after Isaiah would prophesy, Babylon would come, destroy the city of Jerusalem. Before the city would be destroyed, the presence of God, the glory of God would leave the temple In Jerusalem, it's a sad day, but the Lord's presence would return, and he would return in a stable in Bethlehem. Emmanuel, God with us. I had to catch you up from Moses to Jesus, okay? So I'm sorry that it takes a long time to get there, but you have to see the themes. To get us to Emmanuel, God with us. God to make his dwelling among men, as they will call his name Jesus, Yahweh saves. And he will be the sinless son of God who will come to die for sinners on the cursed tree. We celebrate the birth of Christ today and we're going to look at why he came this morning. So if you'll turn with me to 1 Peter 2, verses 22 through 25, we'll go from there this morning as we finish this aspect of the next aspect of the tree, the dead tree or the cursed tree. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, if you'll stand with me in the reading of God's word, we'll read that together, which he draws this from Isaiah chapter 53, that's why I went there this morning. Peter says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 
by his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we, we come before you this morning knowing that this, this tree that you hung on Father, we, we pray that we would grasp the weight of why you came to this earth to be born in a manger and what you did for us. And Father, we pray that this morning we would be reminded that we would take all of our busyness away and be reminded of why we celebrate Christmas, why we breathe upon this earth, and why we live is for you and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you know me any very well, you know that I, uh, your pastor is not very keen on heights. Least uh, favorite ride at Frontier City is, you guessed it, the Ferris wheel. Why? Because you get to the top and they stop and you look out and that is very scary, especially when you have little kids and they're not strapped in and you're like, what is going on here? This is not safe, unsafe. But uh, people like the breathtaking view. I'd rather not. So when I was in grade, grade school, I've told you this story before. We went to the Statue of Liberty. We waited for hours. We climbed an innumerable amount of stairs to get to the top to look out of this statue, only for me to pass at the opportunity to look out the window. So putting up Christmas lights for me is probably not the easiest thing to do, right? Anything less than 10 feet, that's fine for me, okay? But anything over 10 feet, uh, that's trouble. We have this peak on our house, and it's, it's like 500 feet in the air, okay? So uh, how can we get a hook into these lights? Like, right, how can we, just, all we have to do is put a hook in there. I mean, how, how do we do this? The first year, um, the first year we just got uh, a, a local uh, roof guy to come over and hook it in and I was like yes yes pl will you please do this for me and he said yes and he did it and uh, so I, I got off on that but somehow some way the next year um, we didn't have a local roof guy and somehow some way my wife decided she was going to do it so you have to go you have to climb onto the roof. You have to go onto the roof. You have to lean over this 500-foot edge, right? And then you have to hook in the Christmas light. I, I'm, I mean, the first time I couldn't even watch when she was doing this. But I, I kind of cringe telling you this, right? But I, I always tell you to be transparent, so I'm being transparent to you this morning. But, um, but every time she does it, I make sure the neighbors are not watching. Nobody is there. Um, have the paramedics on speed dial, hold my breath as she hooks it in, but it's good. No, it's embarrassing, right? It is, it is, right? It is. But the real, real life, everybody has to rely upon someone else, right? I mean, you have to. 
Because we all fall short in certain areas of life. Me being height. But this is how God has designed the family. He's designed children to rely upon their parents. He's designed the church to rely upon one another. Husbands to have wives that go to high places for them, okay? This is, this is what it is. But it's all true. God's designs point us to Christ and the gospel. And the ultimate reliance for us as humanity is upon the one who could take care of the curse of sin and death. Because we could not do it. And that's, that's the whole middle section of the Bible, right? I just caught you up. Moses fails. David fails. Solomon fails. Abraham fails. Noah fails. We could not take care of the curse of sin and death. We needed someone pure and holy. Someone who never sinned. Someone who completely trusted in God's way by fulfilling the commands completely. We needed someone pure and holy as God is. Holy to take our place and take upon himself the curse of sin so that we could live. It's the gospel. We see it beautifully pictured here with Peter. Let's look at it in verse 22 together. He committed no sin. It's one, one phrase, yet it has loads of thoughts behind it. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He continued entrusting himself. To the good judge. You see Peter is talking to the church here. And this is about. Suffering. Injustly. Verse 19 he says. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God. One endures sorrows. While suffering unjustly. And then in verse 21 he says, for to this you have been called. To what have you been called? To suffer unjustly. He's telling the church, you are called to suffer unjustly. Just as Christ suffered unjustly. He committed no sin. Yet he entrusted himself to the good judge. Let's talk about our first point this morning. It's this. Emmanuel overcomes sin. God with us overcomes sin. He was without sin. It was the Garden of Eden. What happened? Adam failed the test. 
he committed sin. How? By not trusting God's provision. Not trusting in God's plan, yet Jesus never sinned. Even Jesus entered into a test, a temptation, not only in the wilderness, but in a garden, just as Adam did. John describes the garden of Gethsemane as the place where Jesus enters into a test. Jesus goes to pray the night before he's crucified. Luke describes this garden as the Mount of Olive Trees. Got it? He's going into the garden on the mountain to meet with the Lord. And he has a test. Let me read you Luke's account. Luke 22, verse 39. And he came out and went, as he was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. That word can be test. Pray that you don't enter into the test, the temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, If you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What is the cup? The cup is God's wrath. It's described in the Old Testament as the cup of destruction by the Babylonians, which is going to be poured out upon the unfaithful Israel. Remove this cup from me. Not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. His sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. He entrusted himself. To the one who judges justly. We've seen now multiple times in this series. God's path to life. Entrusting yourself to God's path of life. Is something to be feared. It is is hard. It doesn't make sense. It's not the easy path of the world. Let me explain. Adam said, you want me to pass this tree that looks good and tastes good and seems to make me wise for your tree of life? Noah said, you want me to build a boat in the desert, have animals come in? Abraham said, you want me to leave my family and go to a land you'll show me? Oh, and by the way, you want me to sacrifice my one and only son whom the blessing of God is going to come through? That doesn't make sense. David said, you want me to take on a giant with a sling and a stone? And Jesus is in the garden. And this test comes. And he's saying, even though I'm sinless, you want me to die?
Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus' will is to live. My will to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Your will to die on the cross for sinners. You want me to bring life through my death? This is the path to life. And Jesus overcomes by not taking his way, but God's way. Not my will, but yours be done. We read Isaiah 53 as Peter brings this thought. Isaiah 53 begins in verse 2 with, For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of the dry ground. It's like a tree. Jesus is compared to this tree that comes up and he has no beauty. It has, he, he's rejected by man. He's despised. Yet he carries our sor- sorrows. He's afflicted. He's pierced for our transgressions. He's crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, the wrath of God poured upon him to bring us peace and by his wounds we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned everyone to his own way and the lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all you see jesus is the second adam the first adam failed And all who were after Adam, Moses and Abraham, David, Solomon, all after him will fail. Man cannot re-enter the garden to fellowship and commune with God. And yet the second Adam overcame sin and death. He passed the test to eat from the tree of life, and now he will freely give of the tree of life to those who have faith in him. Look at, listen to this, is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 45. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. He's talking about Jesus, the last Adam. But it is not... The spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also all those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. This is beautiful because God himself creates a path, a way for us to enter into heaven, to be born of God, new creations, because of Christ. Let's look at verse 24. This is the meat of the text. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 
By his wounds you have been healed. This is our second point this morning. Jesus takes the curse of death to bring life. Notice in verse 24, I'm going to point it out to you. He uses the word, the tree. Obviously, that's why I'm using this text, right? But he uses the word, the tree, for the cross. Why would he use the word, the tree? He bore our sins in his body on the tree instead of the cross. The biblical writers use this multiple times. Peter uses it once to talk to religious leaders in Acts 5.30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. He talks to Cornelius. And he says, and we are witnesses of all that he did in both the country of the Jews and Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. But Paul also uses this phrase, the tree, in his letter to the Galatians. This is what he says. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Mm. He draws us back to the Old Testament. Paul is writing, he's drawing us back from the Old Testament, saying, Cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. Deuteronomy 21 tells us that this person is cursed when he's put to death and they are hanged on a tree. His body should not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord God is giving you for inheritance. So what is he saying? He's saying death by hanging on a tree in which these apostles are describing the crucifixion scene is heinous. It is the most despicable way for criminals to die. It was meant to be a deterrent for those who would think about breaking the law. And what was the curse that Jesus took upon himself by being hanged upon a tree? Well, the curse was in the garden. Anyone who takes and eats of the tree of knowledge of good and evil will die. He takes And he eats, yet he never sinned. He takes the curse of death as one who had broken the law in the sight of God, yet Jesus never sinned. Peter says he bore our sins on his body on the tree. Now I want you to think about this picture. It's as if 
humanity has cut down the tree of life, which God provides life, and Jesus says, I'll hang on that dead tree to bring you life. He takes the curse of Eden so that we can receive the blessings of Eden. It's interesting, the last part here in verse 24, that we might die to sin. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree here, that he might die, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Death to sin. Just as Jesus died to sin, to live in righteousness, we can choose to say now because of the power of Christ in us, we can choose to say, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus didn't just die so that you could go to Eden. He died so that you can live in Eden now in the presence of holy God, in the power of the Holy Spirit, now. Not just one day. One day we will be glorified, we will be perfect, we will be holy in heaven with God, but now he has called us to live, not my will, but yours be done. Now we have the power to overcome sin in our lives because of what Christ did. That's what Peter is saying here that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. To live righteous lives. The power to overcome sin through Christ. This morning, you, you may be weighted down with sin. Most likely, most people in this room are. You may be so deep into choosing what is right in your own eyes that you think that there is no way out for you. Yet God has provided a way. God in his grace and mercy has given the provision of life for you. Even though you are deserving of the wrath of God poured out upon you, you are deserving of death, God gave the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ for you. He came as a baby in a manger to take the curse of sin and death upon himself to bring you to God. Peter goes on to say in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He wants to bring the presence of the Holy God into your life through the power of the Holy Spirit to live righteously, to die to sin, to walk with the Lord. See it? It's here. We have this um, 
this little nail in the back. You can get one for your family. We, we ask that you just take one per family. But um, we have it with a little yarn attached to it, but mine fell off. But it might fell off for you. But it's to hang on your Christmas tree. As a reminder of the one who was pierced for our transgressions, who hung on a tree so that you could have life. And really it's to teach your children and your grandchildren, those who would come into your home, the gift that God has given to us through Jesus Christ. Christmas is a hard time for a lot of people. Let's remember that Jesus came, he died on a tree took the curse of sin and death for us so that we could have life. Let's finish here. By his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is our third point this morning. It's thus. God's people are healed and able to be led by God. If you think of Eden as this garden of green pasture in which the sheep enter in to the presence of the shepherd, the overseer of their souls, and they're guarded and protected, they're provided. For they're loved. This is what he's talking about. He wants to bring you to God. The healing that takes place is the healing of the sickness of sin. No, no doubt. Sin has affected you and your family in a deep way. And you are in need of healing and restoration. And your mind and your heart is in need of the Lord God Almighty to be your shepherd and overseer. To watch over you, to protect you, to to know that you are in a safe place, that you are in the midst and the presence of God to understand that he loves you and has a call for your life. This is what he's talking about. Jesus took the wounds. He was pierced so that you could be healed. That you don't have to be fearful of the presence of God because he's taken away your sin. You can enter into his presence. 
God's people who are once unclean, they've defiled themselves and now are able to be considered pure and holy and righteous. They've returned to the shepherd and overseer of their souls. They have now come under the authority of the Lord. They're now God's children. They want to submit themselves to the Lord God Almighty. They enter through the gate and are now in the fold of the Lord instead of wandering around in their own way. Thinking, oh, that that looks good. I'll take that. Oh, that tastes good. I'll do that. Oh, oh, by the way, that looks like it's going to help me in my life and be wise for me. I'm going to do that. No. They enter into the Lord and they submit to the shepherd. It's interesting these words here are describers of pastors as Peter talks about in In chapter 5, shepherds and overseers, these men called by the Lord who have to give an account of how they pointed people to the chief shepherd and how they were examples to the flock of following the chief shepherd. That's, That's my role as a pastor, an overseer. I'm to point you to the chief shepherd. I'm to say... Follow me as I follow Jesus. And if I'm not an example, then that, that's it, right? That's not good. But praise the Lord that we have the chief shepherd who cares for us in the flock of God. He says, you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I want to close this service with an invitation. And it is a response to what you heard and read this morning and through this series. And there is a phrase that captures the essence of what we've been teaching through this series. And the phrase is coram deo. It's a Latin phrase and it means the presence of God. And to live a life of Coram Deo or to live Coram Deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. It captures this theme of God's presence dwelling with man. It's it's living your life today as if you were in the Garden of Eden. Trusting God's plan. Forsaking that, that which is outside of God's design. It may be in your life, it may be a vice, okay? It may be a drug, It may be pornography, it may be alcohol, it may be social media, an unhealthy relationship. Whatever you have erected in your life as this tree of knowledge of good and evil, the false Eden, and you're taking in eating from that. You're not dwelling in the presence of God. 
You're not living under his authority. And you're not living for the glory of God. But living in the presence of God is living as if you met with the Lord on Mount Sinai in the burning bush. And God calls you to a great work. Maybe it's even too great for you as it was for Moses. You say, Lord, I can't do that. And God says, I will go with you. I will be with you when you go. And you go in the power and the presence of God himself who goes before you and you accomplish things on this earth that you never dreamed or thought of in the name and for the glory of God. Living in the presence of God, Coram Deo, as if you were in the garden of Gethsemane. And you say, now I'm going to die to self, saying, not my will, but yours. And you're going to say, I'm going to love my spouse, even if they don't respect me. I'm not going to revile in return for my coworker who mistreats me. I'm going to forgive my family member because Christ has forgiven me. It's not my will. It's yours. Be done. Because you, church, have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And now you live in the presence of God. All aspects of your life. Not just on Sunday, but every day. As an accountant as a teacher, as a grandparent. You live in the presence of God expecting him to be with you, to do great and mighty things. You reject the world and trust in God's plan. You see, this is the Christian life. And sometimes we forget we're here on this earth to reflect the glory of God right now. Reflecting his image. So will you meet with the Lord right now? Will you do business with God right now? It begins with calling out to him. To repent. To turn your heart. And to enter into his presence. Asking him, Lord, what do you want from my life? Not my will, but yours be done.